Hello. Good morning. Sorry, I was, I was asleep there. I was just expecting something else to happen, and then, it, and then it didn't. And then you said, welcome to Chris, and I thought, that's my name. I should, I should, I should get up there. It's good to see you all this morning. Um, hands up if you have heard of um, the internet. <laughs> good, that's a, that's a good start. Uh, well, I was on the internet the other day, and it struck me how much content there is on there about personal growth and self-improvement. Has anyone else noticed that? There's a YouTube hack for everything, and I'm going to be honest with you, it kind of sucks me in, because, you know, I want, to, I want to be a better person, I want to grow, I want to, you know, live a better life. Quick show of hands, who here wants to grow and fulfill your potential? Yeah, lo- loads of you. In- in- interesting, I see that some of you have already reached perfection, uh, which, is, which is great, and, and a huge congratulations to you. Hands up if you want the person next to you to be better. <laughs> no, you don't need to do that. You don't need to do that. But did you know that last year the global self-improvement market was valued at $41.2 billion? And the current rate of growth is projected to double in size over the next 10 years. $80 billion. That's like kind of in the same region as the global film industry. As human beings, we crave personal growth, don't we? The big question is how? And what constitutes success? There are so many areas of life we're told that we have to grow in. Our relationships, our health, our diet, our fitness, our parenting, our inner sense of peace, our careers, our productivity, all great things, to be sure. But it's overwhelming, isn't it? Everywhere you look, there are people promising the key to the kind of growth that will finally satisfy your deep yearning to live your best life, life to the full. That yearning is no surprise to God. He made you in his image to reflect him in his perfection and his fullness. Genesis One says that you and I were made by God to be like God, to reflect him. In other words, to be godly. And it's that kind of personal growth, for want of a better term, that you find being talked about and valued in the Bible. Growth in godliness. In a world awash with personal growth strategies, The Bible encourages us to pursue godliness above all. The Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for this life and the life to come. The problem we run into again and again is that our nature that was made for godliness has been marred and broken by our rebellion against God. Often we we try hard to change, but we find ourselves just frustrated and despairing. Other times, the sin that's in us distorts even our desire to want to live a godly life. 
and we stagnate in destructive cycles of behavior that harm us and people we love. So where on earth do we start? This morning, we're going to look at how we grow in godliness and what godliness is supposed to look like. So let's see what the Word of God has to say to us. As the guy said, we're continuing today in our uh, series in Philippians, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And we've reached today chapter 2, verse 12. That's toward the bottom of page 14 in your scripture journals, if you've got those. And we're going to read through to verse 18. I just want to encourage you, scribble notes and underline things and circle things, whatever helps you to follow along as we go. So Philippians 2, verse 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we really want to come to you with soft hearts this morning. We're coming asking you to reshape us. Lord, I want to ask that you would put your finger on anything in our hearts that is just needing to come into line with the truth of your word. And please show us the amazing hope that you have for us in this passage and the power that you want us to receive from you this morning. We really, really want to meet with you today. We want to be transformed by you, God. Please, Lord, would you come and do what only you can do in our hearts. Amen. There's one phrase, pardon me, there's one phrase in this passage that has always jumped out to me. I uh, don't know if uh, you can relate, but it's, it's honestly really confused me at times in the past as well. So we're going to try and get to grips with it right away. It is when Paul tells the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Before we go any further, we're going to figure out what this means, or rather what it does not mean. Otherwise, we're going to end up traveling down the wrong road today. Work out your salvation does not mean work to establish your salvation. Paul does not mean that you've got to work hard and then keep working hard to earn God's mercy as though you're building up credit with him. We must never make the mistake of thinking our eternal salvation is a result of our work. 
Paul is always at pains to point this out in his letters. In his letter to Titus, for instance, he writes, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he makes it even clearer. He says, for it is by grace, the undeserved favor of God, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I know with our natural bent towards self-improvement, we can often fall into the trap of thinking that we need to make ourselves good enough for God. More subtly, we might believe that God has made a great start on our salvation, and he's passed it on to us to, to finish things off well. Romans 11 verse 6 says this cannot be true. If we're chosen and saved by God's gift of grace, it cannot have anything to do with your works. If it depended at all, even 1% on you, then grace would no longer be grace. Your salvation is a free gift received by believing that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection are enough to save you. That's what we've been celebrating this morning. That's what we've been singing about over and over again. What could you add to such a perfect gift? Thinking you can make a a contribution, you know, or pay some of it back. Frankly, ridiculous. I remember when Amelia was younger, she uh, got hold of our family laptop. And she started bending the screen right back. And I was like, whoa, whoa, no, 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 don't, 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 do, don't do that. And she was like, why? I was like, because uh, you'll, you'll break it and then we'll have to get a new laptop. She was like, why don't you want a new laptop? And I was like, <laughs> uh, because that's going to cost us a lot of money that we don't have right now. And she was like, huh. And then she just grabbed my hand and led me straight into her bedroom and went and got her little toy purse and emptied it out onto her bed. And there was like eight pennies like on her bed. And she was like, don't worry, Dad. I've got loads of money. If you ever need a new laptop, you just come to me. I'll I'll pay for it. It's a cute story, but it's not so cute when we act as though our 8P of good works can pay God back for the gift that cost him everything. So when Paul commands the Philippians to work out their salvation, he isn't talking about earning your salvation. To use theological terms, this passage is not about how we are justified, declared innocent and free by our holy God. It's about how we are sanctified, made more and more like our holy God. If you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have been saved, past tense. But if you are in Christ, Paul says, you will also be continually growing in godliness, present tense. We have to understand that godliness starts with encountering Jesus. Our passage today starts with The word therefore. So as the old cliche goes, we have to ask what the therefore is there for. We've got to look back at the verses that came before, verses 5 to 11 that Luke was preaching on last week. 
And those verses are all about Jesus. They contain one of the most concise and astonishing descriptions in the whole Bible of who Jesus is and what he has done. In those verses, we see a glorious Jesus who, though he was equal in power with God the Father, chose not to act for his own gain, but for yours. We find a majestic Jesus who, though he commanded the adoration of all of heaven, made himself a slave in the squalor of this earth for your sake. And we meet Jesus who, though everything was made through him and for him, subjected himself to torture and death at the hands of human beings that he created. And though he died, he was raised to life and is now the king on his throne, worthy of all worship and praise. Growing in godliness has to begin with encountering this living Jesus. Without understanding who he is and what he's done for you, you haven't got a hope. The Bible says that apart from God, your efforts at godliness are garbage to him. They're filthy rags. If you've been trying to grow in godliness by relying on your own efforts to improve and to live right and to do good things, you're in danger because it will never be enough. Some of you might have been around church your whole life. But you're realizing today that actually you've been relying on you. Self-improvement has been your mantra. If that is you and you hear nothing else today, please hear this. God is inviting you to lay it all down and to come to him empty-handed, turn from your own way of doing things, from trying to be in control, ask God for forgiveness, and receive his gift of grace. The next thing we see in the passage is that before Paul commands the Philippians to obey God and work out their salvation, he calls them, my dear friends, He reminds them that he loves them, but I think there's more going on than that because my dear friends could also be translated my beloved. That word beloved in the original Greek agapetos is the same word that God the Father used at Jesus' baptism when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. By using this term, Paul's reminding the Philippians that in Christ, they are loved just as much as God the Father loves God the Son. And so are you. God's love and grace for you is always the starting place as we seek to obey him. Loving obedience to God flows from knowing that you're loved by God because when we know we're loved, It frees us to trust. And if you trust your heavenly father, that he knows best for you, that his ways are always right, that he will never abandon you, it will lead you toward godly obedience to him. God loves you. And what's more, he delights to work in you to make you more and more like his son, Jesus. 
Verse 13 rams the point home that growth and godliness is not just another self-improvement program. We're not dragging ourselves up by our bootstraps here. We work at growing in godliness with the confidence that ultimately it is God who works in you to will and to act. God is the one who gives you the power to obey. Even the desire to obey is a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Without God, our efforts at obedience are hollow and futile, but with God, we have everything we need for a life of godliness. Isn't this amazing? As we do our best to obey, we do that with the confidence that Paul spoke about earlier in this letter, that he who began a good work in you will carry on to completion until you see Jesus face to face. God enjoys enabling what he commands. So godliness starts with encountering Jesus, knowing his love for you, and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you. But an active response is required. We can't miss that in these verses When you truly receive the grace of God, it will change you and how you live your life. If you're sitting around passively waiting for God to zap you with his lightning bolt of perfect holiness, you're going to be disappointed. There is work to be done. We have a responsibility to work out what God has worked in us. The Greek word Paul uses for work out, as in work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is katagadzomai. It's a word that was commonly used to describe the cultivation of land rented out to farmers. I think this is a really great image that shows us our role in nurturing and cultivating God's work in our lives. We didn't manufacture the seed. We didn't plant it. We didn't ensure it germinated, and we cannot make the thing grow. But we can, with the resources given to us by God, care for the plant. We can water it and fertilize it and remove the weeds around it. Just think for a second about what resources God has given you to nurture the seed of the gospel in your life. You have the Bible, prayer, church, family, worshiping together on a Sunday, small group, the encouragement and accountability of a running partners group, maybe, spiritual disciplines such as financial giving and serving. These are some of the tools that God has given us, and we've got to use them diligently. What are the weeds that might choke your spiritual growth? For most of us, we know what those things are for us. You might be thinking of some things right now that you just know are always, over and over again, unhelpful in your life. If you really want to grow 
You're going to have to be ruthless in plucking them up by the roots and chucking them out of your life. We're commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a serious business. It really matters. We've got to do everything in our power to pursue godliness. This is a task we we go about with appropriate awe of our holy and righteous God to whom we will give an account. We're reminded over and over again in Scripture that God knows the secrets of our hearts. There's no hiding from him. He wants all of you. He wants to get to work in every part of your life. And he wants to do it for your own good. You see, we're in a spiritual battle. There is an enemy that wants to choke and inhibit your growth. He wants you to stay chained to sin and to deceive you that there's nothing that can be done about it. But that is a lie. As we've seen, if you're in Christ, God is at work in you. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He's given you resources to cultivate your growth. In him, you have what you need. What does it mean for you then at those times when you know what obedience looks like. You just don't want to. You just don't have that desire. I know none of you would feel that way. but And often when we feel that way, and all of us do, we're tempted to run from God and go and hide in our shame. But it's exactly at that moment that God is inviting us, that he is desperate for us to come to him He wants you to come to him believing that he has what you need, asking him to give you that fresh heart. You can ask him to change your desires. I think that is a prayer that he loves to hear. He loves to answer. And what if you ask, but you're still not feeling it? Then put faith into action and obey God anyway even when you really don't want to do what God is asking you to do, submit to his will anyway. Even Jesus cried out to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was about to face the agony of crucifixion and go through with God's plan. And Matthew 26 records that he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. On one level, he didn't want to go through with it. But his commitment to obeying the Father completely trumped everything. Folks, we have the same spirit at work in us to empower us to do the same And look at the fruit of Jesus' obedience. We're all here today, for instance. God has wonderful fruit to bear in your own life if you would submit to him and obey. And when you take those steps of obedience, I guarantee you that the Holy Spirit will help you. Growing in godliness isn't easy. It's a hard road. But he is with you on that road. 
And you know, it's a, it's a great adventure. Because as we grow in Christ-likeness, according to verse 13, we fulfill God's good purpose, or he fulfills it in us. All of us have a desire, a need for purpose, don't we? But you don't need to scramble around trying to figure it out on your own. God has purpose for your life. It might surprise you what it is. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As you grow in godly obedience, you get to do what you were made to do. You get to walk in the good things that he has prepared beforehand for you to walk in. Is that not an exciting proposition? This is so much better than ticket to heaven Christianity, which just disregards everything we do in this life and the importance of it. Don't miss out on this. It's amazing to step into partnership with the God who made you to be a blessing to the world. Now, in the next verse, verse 14, Paul gets more specific about some of the pitfalls that we have to avoid as we seek to grow in Christ-likeness. He says, deep breath, everyone, do everything, everything, without grumbling or arguing. How are you doing on that one? It seems to me like these are two big issues in our culture. When he says grumbling, Paul is talking here about the under your breath kind of complaining. You know, always having a cynical objection. I know at times in my life, I have been a virtuoso grumbler. And in Britain, let's be honest, it's pretty much our national sport. Moaning about something is, is a very Scottish way of making chat with a new friend. Cynicism is lauded as realism. Guys, even if this is the most normal and natural thing for you, we've got to cut it out. It's just, it's just not the way of God's people. You know, one of the beauties about being in a church with loads of different cultures and nationalities represented is that we can challenge one another's cultural blind spots. If you're from a different part of the world, you might have been shocked by some of the negativity that you've encountered in the UK. I want to just say to you, please do not feel a pressure to assimilate to that culture. Please, please do not. I know people do. We need you to call it out. And for the rest of us, we've got to allow ourselves to be challenged. In fact, to have those things that are really unhelpful, that, that grumbling attitude, that complaint, we've got to allow people to call it out of us and say, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, that needs to change. We're called to be people of joy who fix our mind on things that are praiseworthy and pure and admirable and excellent. That doesn't sound like grumbling to me. Now, the word for arguing here could be translated disputing. This is about um, just kind of having a know-it-all attitude, not humble. 
or prideful. It's about being dismissive of correction and not being teachable, not submitting joyfully to God's word or wise counsel from uh, brothers and sisters around us or leaders. Always resisting, always having to have the last word. Anyone see that in themselves? Can I venture that this is an Edinburgh speciality? We prize knowledge and so-called intelligence. We hate admitting when we're wrong. Again, I think we're in danger of making a virtue out of something that the Bible so clearly calls a sin. Now, even just on the surface of things, we do well to avoid these two behaviors, but there's more depth to explore here. You see, by choosing these two characteristics to highlight, Paul is alluding to a really important story from the Old Testament that he wants us to learn from. In the book of Exodus, God redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. He set them free and was leading them on a journey to the promised land. But we're told multiple times in Exodus and Numbers that the people grumbled and argued Their response to the saving work of God for them was to complain against God and against the leaders that God had put over them in Moses and Aaron. Salvation didn't look like they expected it to right away. And they failed to trust that God would see them through. As a result, they were condemned to wander in the desert for 40 years You know, in response to God's saving work in our lives, we have a choice. We can joyfully submit to God and to one another in gratitude and in trust. Or like the Israelites in the desert, we can complain about the lot that God's given us or moan about those God has put in authority over us. The former leads to growth in godliness and the church community being built up together. The latter stagnates our growth, and so is discord among God's people. The Israelites fail to trust in God's goodness. Church, let's be a people of faith. Not just trusting what our eyes can see, but trusting that God is at work, and he has good plans for us. The allusions to the unfaithful Israelites in the desert continue in the next verse. In verse 15, Paul uses language from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. He commands us to avoid grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. The original verse in Deuteronomy is from a song that Moses sings about how disobedient the people are, and how it will get even worse once he dies. He says, they are corrupt and not God's children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Just compare these two verses for a second. The original in Deuteronomy is a bleak pronouncement on God's people and their inability to obey But just notice that Paul's tone is so different. He turns the expectation upside down. Now, the people of God, he expects, can obey. Why is this? Why are we just more disciplined than the Israelites? No, no, no. Once again, 
It's because we have the Holy Spirit at work in us. The power that we now possess to obey God was prophesied about in the Old Testament through the prophets. In Ezekiel 36, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Once again, come back to this point that our growth in godliness is initiated and empowered by God. We're called to rely on him. By doing that, we prove that we truly are children of God. Now, just before we wrap up, I want to finish just by looking at the impact of our obedience, of our growing in godliness. If we stay true to the word of life, Paul says, that is God's ways, without grumbling or arguing or sowing division among ourselves, the world will take notice. Verse 15 says that believers who live in this way will shine among them like stars in the sky. Paul's making reference here to another Old Testament prophet, Daniel, who said that the time would come where those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And Paul is saying that that time is now. Our obedience, the way we submit to God and to one another as Christians is key to our witness to a watching world. If we want to have an impact on people around us, if we want to lead people into righteousness and into meeting Jesus, our conduct really matters. How we treat one another in church really matters. God has put a light in you and in me. And he's calling us to let it shine out. It's designed to contrast with the dark world around us. The way we live should make us stand out. And yeah, that might mean that we'll feel out of place or maybe even foolish at times. It might even lead to suffering or being marginalized. But we can be reassured that it will also lead to the good news of the gospel shining out to the ends of the earth. In the final two verses of our passage, Paul describes himself as a sacrifice, a drink offering being poured out in service to the Philippians and in worship to God. He also describes the Philippian believers as a sacrifice in their faith, by their faith. You see, this is ultimately where growing in godly obedience leads. It produces a life that is all about self-sacrifice and service to God and to others. This is the model that Jesus gave us. What did his perfect example of godliness look like? Self-sacrifice for others. Serving. That's the ultimate mark of Christ-likeness. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As we live for others, as we serve others, we're worshiping God in the way that we were created to. It doesn't sound glamorous, does it? But notice what Paul says. It's where true and eternal joy are to be found. It's where we find meaning and purpose, that purpose that we so crave. Paul says that even if following Jesus obediently costs us our lives, and Paul fully expected it to cost him his life, living a life of self-sacrificial service is cause for eternal rejoicing. Paul's so certain of that that he, he repeats it. And when you reach the end of your life, what will the evidence be of a life well lived? Will it be the results of your self-improvement plans? Will it be the gains you made in the gym or the productivity of your career? Or will it be the extent to which you grew in godly obedience? The extent to which you lived for and blessed others? The extent to which your life was a life of self-sacrificial service in obedience to God? That is the way of the Jesus that we follow. And that's a journey that he wants to walk with you for the rest of your life. Will you walk with him? We're going to respond now by singing. You can make this song your prayer if you have literally just given your life to Jesus. Or if today is an important day that you are determining that you're going to pursue godliness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stand together and sing to God.